Do you know the story of the longest standing ovation ever? Well, I'll tell it to you. <laughs> it happened after a performance of the opera Othello in Vienna of July 1991. Now, Othello, if you don't know, is the Shakespearean tragedy of an African general in the Venetian army who is tricked into suspecting his wife of adultery. Now, the ovation came for a man who played Othello, Placido Domingo. Now, Domingo is a Spanish-born opera singer who was originally a baritone, but he trained to become a tenor. This gave him a really wide vocal range, and the people who heard him said that he had a clear tone throughout his vocal range, something that's very rare. Now, after this particular performance, um, Domingo played this role at 200 times, but this particular one, the audience gave a standing ovation. It's an honorable gesture, yes, and not something that's overly rare, but this was to be the longest standing ovation ever. The Vienna crowd stood up to clap for 80 minutes. There were 101 curtain calls Domingo didn't even know what to do. He tried waiting longer and longer in between curtain calls, but it's just sort of protocol that you only wait two minutes and come back out. He was just hoping that people would go home, but they kept going. Well, for the last 10 weeks, we've been in the book of Exodus. And if this book is like a drama, then the story and the stage are all set up as a grand display to show one thing, the greatness of God. It's God who sets the stage, it's God who writes the story, and it's God who deserves the standing ovation by the end of it. Well, in this series through Exodus, we've sought to cover the book in a fairly quick amount of time. We've called it a Jeep tour. Um, stop going places fastly, being able to get out of the car and look at things when we want to. Uh, and we've seen how incredible of a journey this book is. There's so many famous scenes from Exodus that make the highlight reel of the Bible stories we know. Right? There's baby Mo Moses being preserved in the Nile River. There's God revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. There's the 10 plagues. There's the crossing of the Red Sea. There's the manna from heaven. There's the 10 commandments. There's the golden calf. Lots of highlights. In fact, so many famous stories that it can be hard to remember the story of the book as a whole, which is what we're trying to do today. Recapping much of what we've covered already and dwelling on the main point and purpose of Exodus. And I think if we could sum it all up in one sentence and sum up the sermon in one sentence, it's this. In the book of Exodus, God writes the story and gets the glory for his people's salvation and formation. God writes the story and gets the glory for his people's salvation and formation. The rhyming just ended up happening. I don't know. Well, we'll see how that main point's true, not just for the book of Exodus, but even for the rest of the Bible and for all of history coming down even to us. And I pray as we unpack this central point that we will think more rightly about God and more rightly about ourselves. I pray that we'll respond to God with gratitude and worship as those who have been saved by him and as those who belong to him. So what I invite you to do now is turn to the book of Exodus. If you're looking at a red Bible you'll find in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 45. And you'll be really helped if you do this today. Uh, I would wager to say you might get lost if you don't have a Bible open. Uh, so page 45, 
It doesn't have a page number because the book, the title of the book is there, but trust me, it is page 45. It comes right after page 44. Um, so the book of Exodus, there are several ways you could divide this book. I'm inclined to think that it splits into two major parts. The first half, chapters 1 through 15, we're like midway through chapter 15. Uh, God works to save his people. He's saving them from the bonds of Egypt. The second half of the book, chapters 15 to 40, God works to form his people, to make them his own. Now, what God does in Exodus is not only to bless his people, it's not only for the good of his people, it's also to display his glory, to display his might and his greatness. Now, we want to make our way through the two halves of the book and see how God reveals himself in both of those sections. God reveals himself through what he does in the first and second half of the book. So the two big points for our time reflect the two halves of the book. So God's glory in saving his people, that'll be chapters 1 to 15, and God's glory in forming his people, chapters 15 to 40. Now, I'm going to say in forming his people probably several times. Those are two separate words, just to, just to give you a heads up, because I know how I would think when I hear that. Um, God's glory in saving his people, God's glory in forming his people. Well, first, God's glory in saving his people. If you want to know Exodus, you have to remember Genesis. So you go all the way back to the beginning. When, when people first walked away from God, the peace with God was lost, separation from God entered, and God had a plan to reestablish the peace he had with humankind at the very beginning. So he promised Adam and Eve to bring them an offspring who would one day crush the serpent's head. And in the process, this offspring would also heal God's people, pay for their sin, reconcile them to, the God, to God. It's the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. Now the promise gets clearer and clearer as Genesis goes on and as the Bible goes on. Later in Genesis, God called a man out of a pagan land, Abram, from Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iran. He promised Abram to make him a nation, to give him land, and that through one of Abram's offsprings, the nations of the world would be blessed, the same blessing God promised to Adam and Eve's offspring. But on one occasion, we read it earlier, when God was making these promises to Abram, who later became Abraham, God told Abram that his descendants would be enslaved to a foreign nation for 400 years. There's no indication that this was because of his descendants' sin. But God did say that it would allow the current inhabitants of that land, of the land of Canaan, the promised land, would allow those current inhabitants time to repent, basically. So by the end of Genesis, we discover how Israel ended up in Egypt, the foreign nation where they would become enslaved. It all began with Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, being sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, when, what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God actually meant for good. As God caused Joseph to rise to second in command of Egypt, this allowed Joseph to oversee the food distribution during a massive famine. Now, when that massive famine affected where Joseph's brothers live, Joseph's brothers came and sought refuge in Egypt, and they were able to be provided for because of Joseph. This is God orchestrating in history. Well, what happened was Abraham's descendants, Joseph's and his brothers, ended up staying in Egypt. They settled in the best of land in the whole country of Egypt. And God caused them to flourish, already fulfilling his promise to multiply them. 
In fact, they were multiplying so much that when a new line of rulers came over Egypt, the Egyptians began to feel threatened by the Israelites. They began to act on that feeling of threat, being threatened as well. They put the Israelites into brutal slavery. And when that didn't work, they enacted policies of infanticide, killing Israelite baby boys. So these are dark and desperate times in Israel. Having been there nearly 400 years, not in the promised land, in a foreign land. So what was God doing? What about his promises to them? Why was he allowing this? How would he make it right? Well, we read of their cries of confusion and desperation in chapter 2, verse 23. You read it there. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So in Israel's desperate times, God saved his people and thereby showed himself to be compassionate and supreme. He showed himself to be compassionate and supreme. So in the opening chapters of Exodus, really chapters 1 to 6, God assured his people that he knew what he was doing, that he had heard their cries, that he was working, and that he would save them. Continually, out of his compassion, he is reassuring his people. Now, we can see a few times when God does this. Highlight just a couple times. God is reassuring his people out of his compassion. Well, first is the verse is right after the one we just read. So chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God showing his compassion and saving his people. But he reassures them another time. You can flip to chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. So Israel's dark and desperate days, not knowing what God was doing, unbeknownst to them, God was raising up a leader. He was raising up a leader through whom he would lead them out of Egypt. But even this leader, Moses, fixated on all the obstacles that would prevent Israel from leaving Egypt. Even Moses couldn't see what God was doing. For example, he says here in chapter 3, 11 and 12, he asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring up the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses believed God. He went to Pharaoh. You may have sung about it. You may have heard the, the songs about it. Go down, Moses. So Moses did go down saw Pharaoh, demanded the release of the Israelites, let my people go, based on God's word to him. And things got worse instead of getting better. Pharaoh took this demand as coming from the Israelites' laziness, that they didn't really want to work. So he gave them even harder work and harder labor. But God still reassured his people that he knew what he was doing, that he was at work, and that he would save them. You can read it again in chapter 6 verses 6 to 8. A good summary of the, the book as a whole. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, 
and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. It's compassionate that instead of remaining silent during their dark and desperate times, God spoke. God spoke to his people. Now, did you notice that every time God went to reassure his people, to comfort them, and to encourage them, every time he did that, he did that by giving them promises. I will bring you out of the land. I will deliver you from slavery. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. God's promises are meant to comfort God's people. And the only way that God's compassion is comforting and securing is if there is no doubt that he can make good on his promises. If there is any sliver of doubt that he can make good on his promises, then we should not be reassured. We should not be comforted. And the only way God can make good on his promises is if he is actually the one who is the author of the story and if he is actually the one who is in control of everything. Now I know when we think of that truth, that God is in control of everything, that he's the author of history, that that can get us into this sort of philosophical web and make our heads hurt. Well, friends, here at this point, how God reassures his people is a reminder that God being in control of everything, that's first meant to reassure us. It's first meant to be a comforting truth. And we could have no real confidence and no real hope if there was even a sliver of a chance that something might prevent God from keeping his promises and that something might prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. Now, out of his compassion, God reassures his people that he is in control and knows what he is doing. And he is going to display for them, prove to them, that he is in control and reigns supreme in the next part of the book, really chapters 7 to 15. He's going to prove that he can make good on his promises and that nothing can prevail against him. Now, we said that Moses' first demand to let the Israelites go to Pharaoh didn't work. Well, if you know the story, you know that his next demand didn't work and the one after that didn't work and the demand after that didn't work either and keep on going. He kept on demanding Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh kept saying, no. Now, this is where the plagues come in. God sent plagues like hail and frogs and the Nile into blood to judge Egypt's sin and to display that God alone is God. To display that God alone reigns supreme. So if you read the plagues closely, you'll find that each plague related to an area of life that the Egyptians thought that their so-called gods reigned supreme. It culminated all the way to the final plague, the area of life itself. Now, God proved that the Egyptians' so-called gods did not reign supreme in those areas of life, but that he reigned supreme in all areas of life. He reigned supreme even over them. So several verses of this section to show that purpose in the plagues, that displaying that God rules and reigns supreme. So you look at chapter 7, 
verses 4 and 5. It says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Hear Hear this purpose. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, displaying that he alone reigns supreme. Look also at chapter 9, verses 14, it's 14 through 16. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be, may be proclaimed in all the earth. God proving that he reigns supreme. Finally, chapter 12, verse 12. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So in saving his people from Egypt, God was determined from the outset to get glory over Pharaoh, over the Egyptians' so-called gods, and over Egypt itself. He was so determined that he even hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would undeniably prove that he alone is God. This was all a part of his plan. And you think of the power of this drama, right? That God allowed his people to remain in Egypt because Egypt would be a perfect place for this display. Egypt was the most powerful country in the world at the time. It wasn't even close. And Egypt knew they were the most powerful country in the world. And so here is God taking a group of slaves who have been enslaved not just for a few years, but for 400 years, and leading them out of a place that is more powerful than any other. Undeniably proving that God shows that even the height of human power and the height of the gods that human can make cannot prevail against him, that God alone reigns supreme. Friends, do you think that this is a good thing? Do you think it's good for God to do this, to prove that he reigns supreme, to get glory over others, over other so-called gods? Do you think it's good for God to prove that he deserves glory? Well, think of it this way. It's good for us to find out whether or not what we rely on, what we hope in, and what we worship is is actually reliable, actually provides hope, and is actually worthy of worship. It's good for us to find that out. About once a month, the faithful Don Lucas uh, includes in his uh, church building workday on Tuesdays, uh, going around the church, he takes this little pointer, it's not so little, it's almost as tall as him, um, <laughs> and he uses it and he pokes buttons on the smoke detectors around the building. Now, when he pokes the buttons, you know, 99 times out of 100, they make this really annoying, piercing sound. And the one he does in the study is like right next to me. 
<laughs> but I am glad that Don does this because we need to know whether or not we can rely on the smoke detectors. Now, discovering that what we rely on and what we hope in and what we worship, discovering those things not to be reliable, not to provide hope, and not to be worthy of worship, discovering that can be a painful and even annoying, disappointing process. But it's for our good. It's for our good. Because it shows us what ultimately is reliable, what really does provide hope, and what really is worthy of worship. So even something like the plagues is good for God to do, even though it's hard. Well, do you think it's good for God to prove that he reigns supreme and deserves glory? I want you to think of it positively, too. There are some things that are so good and so great that it is right and good for us to praise them. And we'll get upset if people don't praise them or praise something else instead. We'll get upset. There are plenty of people... You may know one of them. You may be one of them. There are plenty of people that if you told them that the Beatles' music stinks, that you don't care how groundbreaking it is, and that it doesn't light a candle to today's music, if you told that to them, they would flip out. Because if we think something actually is the best, if we genuinely think that, we think it's good for other people to recognize it as well. Not just that it's good for people to recognize it, we think other people ought to recognize it as well. We count it a tragedy if they don't. How much truer should that be for God himself, who created everything, who holds everything together, who is the only one who is completely holy and pure without any sin. If nothing is, and no one is better than God, then it is not only good for people to praise him, people ought to praise him. And friends, there are Egyptians who learned this. There was a mixed multitude of people who went up out of Egypt, and not just Israelites, but also foreigners. You can read about Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a foreigner himself. He learned that God alone reigned supreme when he heard of the story about the Exodus. Well, we're still in the first half of the book. God showing himself to be compassionate, showing himself to reign supreme. There is one more thing I want us to notice in the first half of Exodus. It's that the same God who acted in judgment to show that what people relied on and worshipped was neither reliable nor worthy of worship is the same God who provided a way of escape from his judgment. The same God who judged is the same God who provided a way of escape from his judgment. As God proved that he reigned supreme, he also acted to save. God saved his people from his judgment. How? By providing a substitute. When God acted in judgment during the final plague of Egypt, there would be death in every household. It would either be the death of a firstborn son or it would be the death of a lamb. This is known as the Passover. God said in chapter 12, verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The same God who acted in righteous judgment of sin, is the same God who provided the means to escape his judgment for sin. 
The same God who proved that he reigned supreme and who provided a substitute for his people is the same one who showed his people that he had completely saved them, completely defeated the powers of darkness, and completely set them free. That's what he did at the Red Sea. You read of that in chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now before we move on to the second half of Exodus, we'll reflect just a little bit. The Israelites were in desperate times, hurting, oppressed, enslaved, grasping for any kind of answer and hope. Friends, do you see that our times are desperate times? I don't want to say that there aren't signs of God working good in the world, but can we really say that the world is as it should be? Can we really say that the world ever has been as it should be? Well, not just the world as a whole being in desperate times. Do you see that you are in desperate times as well? If you look at the world and conclude that it's not as it should be, can you honestly say that you haven't contributed to that? By acting selfishly, by treating yourself as if you are better than others, acting self-righteously, by hurting others, by deceiving, by lying, by manipulating, by hating, by envying, by lusting. You might say that that's just what it means to be human. Well, friends, what it means to be human isn't good then. The Bible says that the world is the way it is, largely in part because each one of us is sinful. And so the sin, the wrong that we do, ultimately is against God. It's telling God, we want it our way and not your way. And so standing before him, we will not be innocent, but guilty, putting us in a dark and desperate situation. So friends, where is your hope for the world? And where is your hope for yourself? Society tells us that the world will get better when we stop talking and start listening. Stop hating and start loving. In other words, society tells us that the world will get better because the hope is in ourselves. Now, don't hear me say this. We should do things like love. We should do things like listen. But do we really think that those things will get us out of this mess? Do we really think that we can do those things perfectly? Do we really think that enough people will do those things? And do we really think that we, when we do them, we will do them without self-interest, without trying to prove ourselves that we are good enough people? No. Hope for our desperate times. Hope that they will end. Hope that we will be saved from the judgment of for what we've done it comes not from ourselves. It comes from God himself. Friends, hope in the one who has proved that he reigns supreme, who has proved that we can rely on him, who has proved that he is worthy of worship, and who promises to make all things new, including us. He's given us this hope not because we deserve it. He's given us this hope actually in spite of the fact that we deserve the opposite. And he's not just proved all those things here in Exodus. He's proved all those things fully and finally through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. 
When we trust in Jesus, he is our substitute. He died the death we should have died. At the cross, Colossians 2 says, Jesus paid for the sin that stood against us. We have a sure hope and confidence that Jesus has saved us, that he has defeated the powers of darkness, and that he will return to make all things new because he rose from the dead, confirming his victory. So the hope for the world, the hope for ourselves, comes not from us, it comes from Christ, the compassionate and supreme Lord and Savior. To sum up the first half of Exodus, God gets glory in saving his people by showing he's compassionate, by showing he is supreme, by showing that he alone saves. All those things are ultimately displayed in the Lord Jesus. Let's go to the second half of Exodus. I promise it'll be shorter than the first half. God's glory informing his people. God's glory informing his people. Frederick Douglass experienced the brutality of slavery from the time he was born. He endured his family being split apart. He endured being treated as chattel, being whipped to an inch of his life on several occasions. He endured being chided for attempting to learn how to read. He endured being treated as subhuman. When Douglas finally got freedom, he had a new way of life up in the northern United States. It wasn't the slavery of the South, no, but neither was it free from hardship. Neither was it what he was expecting. His employers withheld his wages. His co-workers would regularly beat him. And his church would serve the Lord's Supper to him and other black congregants separately. Douglas was quick, quickly disillusioned with the so-called freedom he found in the northern, northern United States. And when he had an opportunity to spend time in Great Britain, he took it. By then, England had uh, emancipated all their slaves. It had taken place already. And although the life he found in England was better than what he had in the northern United States, Douglas decided that he would go back to the States to use his freedom to advocate for the freedom of all slaves. Douglas decided that his freedom had a purpose. In the first half of Exodus, God set his people free from the bonds of Egypt. In the second half of Exodus, he shows them that their freedom has a purpose. Formerly, they belonged to Pharaoh. Now, they belong to God. God sought to get glory not only in saving his people, but in how his people would live after they were saved. Just as we noted who God, was, who God showed himself to be by saving his people, now we're going to see who God showed himself to be in forming his people, by molding them, shaping them. So three big things we see about God as he forms his people. As God formed his people, God shows his loving care, his holiness, and his abiding presence and promises. His loving care, his holiness, and his abiding presence and promises. So in forming his people, God shows his loving care. So fresh out of Egypt, the Israelites landed in the wilderness, and God allowed a series of trials to come their way. This is probably not how they expected to start off. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, and instead they got a land without much of a flow of anything. They had awaited this great land, and what was God doing here in the wilderness? And what was he doing, especially allowing trials in the wilderness? Well, he was forming his people, molding them, shaping them. Look at chapter 15, verses 25 to 26. 
says the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God testing his people, and thereby forming them, molding them. He did this even in how he provided for his people in the wilderness. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So friends, God didn't save the Israelites and then tell them, you guys are good now, right? You know, I did most of the heavy lifting here. Now how about you take it from here? No, God did not do that. God intended for his people to depend on, on, on him, not just for their salvation, but for their entire lives, each and every day. And God does the same for us, those who he saved through Christ. He's done more than just save us from hell. He is working to make us new, to make us like Jesus, to form us. And one day, his work will be done. That's the sweet promise of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That God will finish what he started. Well, until he finishes his work, God is a careful gardener, pruning away what we lean on and trust in and worship that is not God. That's a part of what it means for God to be in control. Now, friends, it doesn't take, hard to th- it doesn't take much to think that pr- something like pruning hurts. Pruning does hurt, but why do we do it, and why does God do it? You prune so that the tree will be healthy, you prune so that the tree will grow. The final result of all of our trials, just like the trials for Israel in the wilderness, is so that God will use, uh, use them to form us, to transform us sin, sinful people into sinless people. So Christian brother or sister, you might not know exactly why God is doing what he is doing in your life right now in a particularly hard circumstance, but you can know this much that the final product of it will be part of his beautiful work to form you into being like Christ. When you doubt this, and it's really hard to remember this when we're going through the thick of the trial, when we doubt this, look at the cross, the ultimate trial, the ultimate harsh reality, the ultimate defeat, and the ultimate example of God bringing triumph out of defeat. God works, God in his loving care, he works to form his people, even using trials. In forming his people, God also shows his holiness. He shows his holiness. God saved the Israelites, but he wasn't done with the Israelites. He allowed trials in order for their faith in him to be built up, to force them to depend on him in their everyday lives. But then we get to chapters 19 to 24. It's there that God set up a covenant with his people. It's there he formalized his relationship with them. He freely chose to make binding commitments to them 
and he was calling them to freely choose to make binding commitments to him, a covenant. So this is the section where God shows his people what it means for them to live like his people, which is why we get the Ten Commandments in this section. That's where it's encapsulated, what it means to live as God's people. It's the section where we find why God has a people in the first place. I want you to turn your attention to there. Chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's the important part, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here's how this works. God saved his people, and then he gave his people a mission. God saved his people and then gave them a mission. They were to be set apart, holy, and they were to be priests. That means as an entire people, they were to go, to go in between God and all the nations of the earth that did not know God. They were to make God known to the entire world. This would fulfill the mission. By following the law, they would fulfill the mission God gave them. By following God's law, which is described in chapters 20 to 24, they would show the unbelieving world around them what God is like and who God is. They would show the unbelieving world around them by following God's law. They would show them that there is only one true God, that the one true God cares about fairness and justice, especially justice for the vulnerable. And the one true God loves people and the one true God is holy and separated from sin. Israel had the mission of showing who God is to the rest of the world, showing his holiness. Friends, if Jesus has saved you, then he has given you a mission, a job, a responsibility. And that responsibility is to represent him as you live in the world. <laughs> If this is why our obedience matters, because when the world looks at us as individuals and as a church, they should be able to see God's character. They should look at us and be able to see that God is holy and God is loving, God is patient and kind and forgiving and just. This means God gets glory for who he is when his people live in such a way that show who he is. So who do you rub shoulders with on a consistent basis? Who are the people in your sphere of influence? God has given you a responsibility to represent your Lord and Savior to those people. That's a weighty responsibility, but that is a privilege. So the people you rub shoulders with, it could be the kids in the neighborhood or the kids at school. It could be your coworkers. It could be your boss. It could be your grandparents, your grandkids, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, the people who you see when you stop at coffee or the place you like. God has called each one of us, those whom he has saved, to represent him in the world. While informing his people, God shows his abiding presence and promises. This is the last thing. 
So here's this great promise, this weighty mission. Through you, the whole world will know who I am and recognize that I am the one true God who is worthy of praise and who can save people from themselves. Through you, the world will know that, through how you live and act and speak. Now, if that weren't enough, that's too hard. God promises to take up residence among them, pitching his tents like the rest of them lived in tents. So chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God would be present in the tabernacle to guide them, to empower them for the mission he gave to them. Exactly how he would do this and how people could be brought into his presence through high priests, that's all described in chapters 25 to 31. So not surprisingly, this big, weighty mission to represent God to the world, Israel failed. And they failed spectacularly. While waiting for instructions from God, they turned their backs to God. And from the gold they received because of him, they made a God of their own. This is the golden calf incident of chapter 32. Now that incident and the fallout and restoration after it shows God's character as revealed in chapter 34, verse 7. Very important verse in all the Bible. Chapter 34, verse 7. That God is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So because this is who God is, he can keep his promise to dwell with his people and he can take his people's sin seriously. He doesn't have to do one or the other. Moses went on uh, the Israelites' behalf to lead them back to God, to lead them in repentance, and God graciously restored his people to himself. And he revived their hearts so that they would have a fresh grasp of his grace and love toward them. Such a fresh grasp that they would now delightfully and freely follow the Lord and obey his word. That's how the book ends, as we saw last week. The book ends with the people building the tabernacle and God filling the tabernacle with his glory. So informing his people, God gets glory as he shows his patience his faithfulness, and his power to change his people. In the second half of Exodus, even after something like the golden calf, God forgave, God healed, and God kept his promises. So God's abiding presence, that he remained with them, and God's abiding promises, that he kept his promises, they give us hope for saved people who are still sinful people. He give us hope for saved people who are still sinful people. If you think about this, as Christians, we've received better promises than the Israelites did in the wilderness and in Exodus. We don't have the law for how God would have us live in the world written on tablets of stone. We have that law written on our hearts. As God does not just dwell among us in a tabernacle, God dwells in us by his spirit. These are better promises full and final forgiveness and redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Still, even though we have these better promises, it is possible. And friends, each one of us still gives ourselves back to what formerly enslaves us. Still give ourselves back to sin. But yet, just as we have better promises, so we also have a better assurance a better grounds 
that God's presence abides with us and that God's promises remain. We can be even surer of that. Listen to the words of the one known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's from 1 John. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Sinning is bad, if you didn't know. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, for, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You'll hear us say all the time that we are not a perfect people, but we worship and serve a perfect Savior. That's not to minimize the importance of holiness and obedience. Neither is it to minimize that holiness and obedience are impossible. No. To say that we have a perfect Savior is to say that the church is like a hospital, and that God has revived each one of us from the dead, and he is still operating on us. It's to say that our story is much like the story of Exodus, only on a grander scale. That we were in desperate times, not even crying out because the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And enslaved, not just to Egypt, but enslaved to sin in the domain of darkness. But out of his sheer grace, God saved us through the one who went in our place. Jesus, the true Passover lamb, who died and rose again. So that though we were dead and enslaved, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That displays his glory. That displays his might. So having been saved from sin, brought back to life, we now belong to God. And he is healing us from the sin that remains in us. And he is forming us to be more like our Lord and Savior. And he will stay with us until we are in the true promised land where sin will be no more and where we will dwell with God face to face. The story of Exodus is our story, only on a grander scale. And friends, God has written this story and he gets the glory for this story. So thank God for his grace and what he's done for us so far. And thank God that we can rest, that he will finish what he started. Let's pray. God, our hearts so often want to prove ourselves and prove our worth, prove our goodness. Or perhaps we despair because we know we can't prove it. But lift us up to realize this, that our salvation, our status with you, your favor toward us rests not on us. It rests on our substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate before you. Would we grasp the grace you have given to us through him? And we thank you, God, that you have rescued us from our sin. You have paid for it, the judgment of our sin. And we thank you that you are carrying us home, saved and forming. God, continue to work in us. Keep your promises to us and rest that you are able and help us to rest that you are able to keep your promises to us and that you will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.